0: Open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 3. Yes, we're studying the book of Hebrews, but we shall begin in Genesis chapter 3. For any who know me, and for even those who don't, you know that over the last five weeks I've been quite taken and excited about this study of the book of Hebrews that we have entered into. Whether it was the introduction to this glorious book, whether it was chapter 2, Or whether it was chapter four, there was always something for every particular Sunday that seemed like it made it a little better than even the previous week. Chapter one, setting forth the glory of Christ. I mean, how can you, how can you beat it? But then you come to chapter two with that ninth verse, but we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels and it seems like it even beat chapter one. Then you get to chapter three and you see that Jesus is better than Moses and you have the strong warning given to those who don't take heed or who don't continue in what they have heard. Then in chapter 4, we have the glorious rest that remains for the people of God. And we have the Word of God presented to us as a great high priest that has passed into the heavenlies. This morning, we take up the most important theme of the book of Hebrews. We do. Believe me. I know I say most important, favorite, and all these superlative terms all too often. They become rather diluted in their significance. But this morning, at chapter 5, we do take up the most important theme of Hebrews, and that is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood. That is the overriding theme of the book of Hebrews, Because to a Hebrew mind, that was the most glorious aspect of Old Testament worship. The reason I'm starting in Genesis chapter 3 is I want to make this point. In any religion that you might have heard of or that you might devise, you need a priest. Every religion has to have a priest. And a priest has to have an altar. And an altar has to have a temple or a sanctuary where it might be found. The most important element to any religion, God's religion or the religion of all the false deities in this world, requires a priest. There is no way to worship God without a priest. Because you must have someone that will represent you To that God, every religion has had a priest. Every stage of the word of God, every dispensation that God has given unto men, had its priests. And the priesthood of Christ becomes extremely important if you want to see Jesus Christ exalted. I want to look at Genesis chapter 3 because this is the first occurrence where we have sinners and God existing together in the same universe. Genesis chapter 3. And what does man do without a priest? What does man do without a priest? Verse 7 of Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. What do men do when they know there is a God, but they don't have a priest? They hide. They hide. Listen, if you had been Adam, do you think he knew his origin? (laughs) Do you think he knew the origin of Eve? Indeed, he says he knew the origin of Eve. That's why he named her woman, because she was taken out of man. He knew there was a creator God. He had spoken with that creator God. That creator God had spoken to him. That creator God had brought him every beast of the field to see what name that Adam would give those beasts. There was not only that position of creator There was also the communion that Adam had had with God before the fall. But as soon as sin enters the picture, men are afraid of the deity because they know they're in trouble. I'm sure none of you parents have ever witnessed this among your children, that when they've done something wrong, they tend to avoid your presence. Ever found your children ready to go to bed early? Reluctant to come to supper? Didn't want to come home from school? Wanted to stay in their bedroom? That's a good... That's good. You want to see fear like that in your children. If you don't have fear like that, you must not be much of a parent. Because God as a Father always intimidates sinners. If there's no intimidation of sinner, then there is no fear. If there is no fear, there is no respect. If there's no respect, there's no obedience. You can't have obedience without fear. Fear motivates obedience. And when there's disobedience, that same fear drives someone away from God. Imagine yourself in Adam's sandals this morning. He's got some fig leaves sewn around him and he's hiding in the trees. He was an intelligent man, brethren. He was not an idiot. We find his grandchildren playing harps and organs, cunning artificers and all matter of work in the fourth chapter of Genesis. He knew about God. He knew the importance of worshiping that being. And yet he hides at the presence of God's voice in the garden. He avoids the presence of God when in the past he was in communion with God. Imagine the fear that overtakes the human soul when that human soul has sinned, and yet that human soul remembers there is an infinite Creator God that I must deal with who has threatened vengeance on the act I just committed. Can you get a feel for that this morning? It is the feel to a degree that rages within every man. Depraved men have a fear of death and of some divine retribution and justice. Why do men fear death, brethren? Do you think they really believe in soul sleep? Do you think they really believe that when they die, it's all over, they're annihilated? They can say that all day. Bring them to the moment of death and see what they want to believe. Romans chapter 1 tells us that every man has had revealed to him clearly, and it's been made manifest, and he knows the truth. As far as this truth goes, there is a God with eternal power. Brethren, they know that. I love Romans chapter 1. When you teach total depravity, don't think the natural man knows nothing at all. He has no desire toward that God. But he knows there is one. But then he likens that God to all sorts of creatures. Trying to lower that God a little bit because thinking of Him as He is, revealed in nature, the eternal God, and a Godhead is too much. It's too much for Him in His rebellion. Because the thought of His rebellion against an infinite God is too great. The fear is overwhelming. So He makes a God that He can appease with simple little sacrifices. A priest is essential to your survival. Your soul stands in jeopardy this hour if you do not have a priest to intercede on your behalf with God. Now, Adam needed that priest. You need that priest. All religions know you need that priest. Even the dumb pagans know you need that priest. I don't care if it was the Philistines worshiping Dagon in First Samuel chapter 5 and 6, they had their priests. I don't care if it's the mystery religions of Babylon, they had their priests. I don't care if it's Pharaoh in Egypt, who claimed himself to be king and God, he had his priests. And the Bible tells us of those priests. Looking at Genesis chapter 4, we find that God made a provision for priests before the Levites. And that is that the heads of families, this is called the patriarchal period of the Bible, where we talk about the patriarchs like Noah and Abraham. See, they came long before the law of Moses that gave the Levitical priesthood. The heads of the homes were the priests. Men were the priests. Fathers were the priests. And here we find Cain and Abel coming to God to intercede. God had given them special provisions to be their own priests and to be priests for their households. Look at Genesis chapter 4 and verse 3. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. I have pointed this out before, but in that third verse, we have the proper time, the proper place, and the proper God. Now, how did they know that? God had made them priests for their families. Cain's problem was he didn't bring the proper offering. And God's a stickler on the priesthood. I don't care if that priesthood is a patriarch, if it's a Levite, or if it's Jesus Christ. Everything had better be done according to his will. Verse 4, in Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Notice, who makes offerings but priests? Abel was his own priest. He made an offering and God had respect unto that offering. So Abel performed an effective priesthood or a priestly ministry to God. Because God accepted his offering. Verse 5, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. Notice that it just wasn't the offering he wouldn't accept. He wouldn't accept the man offering it. Because the offering was no good. If the offering is no good, then for those... Whom then for those that the offering is being offered for they are not covered by the offering. It becomes very important in the book of Hebrews. Not only had the priest better be not only had the priest better be authorized by God but the offering had better be authorized. and it goes on to describe what Cain did to Abel because God accepted Abel's offering and did not accept his own. Look at Genesis chapter eight. Genesis chapter 8, brethren, we're in need of a priest. I assume this morning you have left your homes and you're worshiping here because you have some religious need for your souls. (laughs) That's a basic assumption. You know, I think in America people do things for all sorts of weird reasons, like social status, like tradition, like custom, like habit. But I hope you're here this morning for some religious need in your soul that you have an eternal soul and there is an eternal God and He has eternal power and your soul has sinned. And when I mix those four things together in the blender of my mind, I come up with danger. That's why there is religion. Fear of danger. And you are in danger this morning without a priest. Now, Noah was a head of a family. And we read, when he came out of the ark in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20, we read that Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savour, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground. Oh, isn't the word of God wonderful? That just hit me. God didn't even say this out loud. He said it in his heart. And we have revealed to us the heart of God. He said it in his heart. We know the innermost thinkings of God because He's revealed them to us. The Lord smelled a sweet savour, and the Lord said in His heart, "I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done." The point I want you to get: Noah built an altar. Noah selected sacrifices. Noah offered burnt offerings. God accepted them. Fathers, do you realize at all your position in this world? Until God ordained the Levites, fathers built altars. Fathers offered sacrifices. Fathers interceded on behalf of their families. If you can find me, a woman, that built an altar to the Lord and offered a sacrifice, I'll eat the book that's on my pulpit. And I say that for the benefit of you men. God has exalted you as heads in the spiritual realm of your families. Take charge. Shoulder that responsibility. It ought to excite you that God considers your position that high that before the Levites, you were the ones that offered sacrifices to God and perform the priestly function for your family. Look at Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. We find here a man that the Bible says was a perfect man. Job chapter 1, verse 5, And it was so, speaking of the sons and daughters of Job, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them. Now that's a priestly function. When you sanctify something, you make it holy. Here's Job making his children holy. Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. He had quite a priest to it, didn't he? He built altars. He offered sacrifices for every child one at a time. And he did it continually. And he sanctified them. You want to look up the word sanctify in the book of Leviticus? You'll find it a few times because the Levites were to sanctify everything. That's a priestly office to make your children holy. Now, you don't have animal sacrifices to offer up. You have one sacrifice that's far superior to anything Job ever offered to offer up. And you fathers can still do it for your sons and your daughters. And that is to rise up early in the morning and get on your knees and offer up Jesus Christ and his shed blood upon your children. And to beg God for mercy upon your children. And to ask God to forgive their sins upon your children. Just as Job did. Coming back now to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, we have a short, vague description of another priest. Before the law of Moses. We've looked at Abel. We've looked at Job. We've looked at Noah. You full well know that Abraham offered offerings in many places. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had a place they called Bethel where they offered up sacrifices. Bethel means the house of God. Genesis chapter 14, Lot has been taken captive by four kings that came against Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Abraham, his uncle, determines to rescue him. He takes his 318 trained servants pursues the four kings, uh, recovers all that was lost, including Lot and all of his possessions. Let's read verse 16. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. I mean, he got it all. God blessed him. Verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedorlaomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shavi which is the king's dale. Now here are the important verses that I want you to get. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Now Melchizedek is speaking in the first part of verse 20, but the one that gave tithes was Abraham. We know that from Hebrews. Abraham gave tithes to a man that was a greater priest than was Abraham. Now Abraham was a priest in a sense because he offered his own sacrifices for himself and for his household. But there was a man that God had called to be an extra special priest, and that was Melchizedek. And it was to that man that Abraham offered his gifts, his tithes. He gave his tithes to God through Melchizedek. He didn't keep them himself. Melchizedek was a greater priest than was Abraham. He was a man that God had called. He was the priest of the Most High God. What can we learn about Melchizedek in Genesis 14? Not very much. It says he was king of Salem. And that's quite a little rabbit trail right there when it says king of Salem. We know from the book of Hebrews that Salem means peace. But can you think of any other city that is special, more special than any other city in the eyes of God that Melchizedek was king of? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He was king of Salem. I do not have time this morning at all, but if you were to look at a Bible atlas and see, we are told a number of cities here that are involved in Abraham's pursuit and his return. They're mentioned in verses 14 and 15. We know where Abraham was living because the Bible tells us. If you were to look at a Bible atlas and see what lies right between where he chased those kings and recovered the goods and came back to Hebron, you will find a city named Jerusalem was Jerusalem in existence before David. Indeed. Look at Joshua chapter 10. Keeping your finger at Genesis 14. Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10 and verse 1. And remember, brethren, this is only 400 years or so after Abraham when Joshua took the land of Canaan. Verse 1. Now it came to pass, one Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem. This is long before David, brother, and this is 500 years before David. There was already a city named Jerusalem, which shortened could be Salem, which had a king. Melchizedek was king of Salem, God's place, God's city. Of all the cities in the world, Jerusalem was his choice. Melchizedek was king there. He was a king priest. Isn't that interesting? It'll become very interesting the further we go in the book of Hebrews. He brought forth bread and wine and there was communion made with Abraham and this priest before God and then this priest blessed Abram. This priest called upon God and blessed the man Abram and offered up thanksgiving for the victory And it was through this man that Abram offered up a gift. So you've got to have a priest. How in the world do you take a gift and throw it up in the sky and hope that God latches onto it? You give your gifts through a man that is God's ambassador, that is God's priest, that will in turn maybe use it himself, maybe pass it on to others, but because it's been given to him as the representative of God, it's been as if you gave it to God himself. This is the lesson so far. You are in need of a priest. Before Moses, there were priests as Abel, as Noah, as Job, and as Melchizedek, a man from nowhere, the man without beginning of days or end of life, without mother, without father, without a genealogy. Where did he come from? We don't know. And that's what's, in, that's what's so special about Melchizedek. The fact that you don't know where he came from. As it will become important in chapter 7, but not today. But here was a priest. In order for men to find peace with God, they needed a priest. Look over at Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. I've already established that Pharaoh in Egypt had his priests. All pagan religions have had their priests, whether it's Egyptians, Philistines, or Babylonians. They have their priests. The Babylonians still in existence today in the city of Seven Hills still have their priests, don't they? Millions of priests, thousands of priests, because pagan religion knows they need their priests, as does the true religion of God. This is an important passage, Exodus 19. I don't know how carefully you read your Bibles, but I wonder if you've ever latched on to this word. Exodus 19 and verse 22. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount. Now, this is just shortly after coming out of Egypt. God has not given the law yet. Moses doesn't know anything about what God wants in Old Testament worship. But in verse 19, God comes down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain. Moses went up. I want in verse 22. God is speaking to Moses and he tells him in verse 21, Go down, charge the people that they don't break through and look and try to see me and I have to kill them. Verse 22, And let the priests also which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves lest the Lord break forth upon them. Ever wondered about that word, priest? Who are these priests? God hadn't yet chose the tribe of Levi. They were select fathers in the tribes that had taken more upon themselves as the duties to worship God, and God blessed their means. Now, if everybody was being a priest, it would become a rather cumbersome worship. But specialization of labor was known long before Adam Smith wrote the book Wealth of Nations. Specialization of labor is right here. There were already priests among the nation. Verse 24 says the word again. Here in Exodus 19, this is before God told them that the priests had to come from Aaron's descendants. Important to see just how extensive the need is for priests. What do we know about the Levitical priesthood? You know, that would take us forever to study it, wouldn't we? I'm not even going to turn you anywhere about the Levitical priesthood because once I start turning, we'll not stop turning. The book of Leviticus, you guessed it, is about the Levitical priesthood and all the rules of that priesthood. Once a year, those priests called the sons of Aaron would take two goats, And remember, they would sacrifice one as a burnt offering and the other one was made a scapegoat on which Aaron or the high priest at that time would place his hands and confess all the sins of his own life and all the sins of the people and then a fit man. The Bible knew about fitness long before the 20th century craze. Did you know that's what it says in the book of Leviticus chapter 16? And a fit man would take that goat out into the wilderness and loose him. A scapegoat. All the sins had been dumped on that goat, and it was taken out in the wilderness. And that was a priestly function. Once a year. At that same time, that priest would take blood of offerings that he offered on the altar and go in with his censer into the holiest of all, that innermost compartment of the tabernacle, behind the veil, where was the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim over it. And he would go in there with that incense and make sure he covered the ark with incense so that God wouldn't strike him dead. And then while he was in there, he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, which is the throne of God, where God would come down and sit and communicate with the Israelites. What a glorious ceremony. I mean, you want to talk about the need for a priest? and God would come down and fill that with His glory. And you could know that intercession was being made for you. I mean, if you were an Israelite, what would you love most about your religion? You had the greatest priests the world had ever seen, even from external appearance. I mean, you read about the ceremonies and the robes they wore and the miters they had on their heads and the beads and the bells and the linen that went around that tabernacle and the gold. And the linen breeches, I mean, every garment was taken care of straight from the Lord as to what they were to wear. Now, I'm trying to get you into the mindset of a Hebrew Christian in the New Testament. You had the most glorious priesthood the world had ever seen. Can you imagine a priesthood that when a plague would come from the Lord, when the people would murmur against God, and a plague would burst onto the people... And the people would just start dropping dead. Right in front of you, the priest could grab some incense from off the altar and run into the midst of the congregation, waving that incense, and the plague would stop right there. And he would stand between the living and the dead. Would you be impressed with the Levitical priesthood? Indeed. When that high priest would stand out there before that altar and slip two stones into his breastplate, drop two stones in called Urim and Thummim. And I know I've got questions on Urim and Thummim before you. People want some detailed explanation as to what the stones were. We don't know. They were two stones. They dropped them into special little pockets in the breastplate. God chose to use two stones to signify that in those two stones was a symbol that that high priest had direct channels to the mind of God. And that priest could ask anything he wanted of God and he would be given the answer when he had Urim and Thummim in their pockets. Don't ask me what they stand for. Listen, I could preach a sermon for 30 minutes on how they stand for the Old Testament, the New Testament, but what good would that do you? All right. How many men have done that, though? It's pitiful. God didn't tell us. They simply signified the fact that that priest had an open channel to God. Now think about that Levitical priesthood. Once a year, all the sins go off in the wilderness. Standing between the living and the dead and stopping a plague in its tracks. Asking of God and receiving a direct answer straight from God for a difficult question. That was the Levitical priesthood without going into all the other details of what that Levitical priesthood did. If a woman had played around on her husband, and that husband was sitting at home watching television, and he looked, you know what I mean. He was sitting at home, he looked at his wife, and he said, You know, I do have a good-looking wife. I'll bet she's been messing around. Take her down to the high priest and say, I think my wife has been messing around. I'm jealous. The priest would give her a potion to drink. And if she had been messing around, she would rot on the spot. If she hadn't been messing around, she'd conceive and he'd have another child. That wasn't a bad deal, was it? But that was the high priest. That was the high priest. I mean, when you had leprosy and you wanted to be finally cleansed, who were the most advanced medical doctors in the world at that time? But the Levitical priesthood. You would go in before the priest and he'd examine you and that's why Leviticus gets rather tedious sometimes reading about the red rising and the scabs and the white and all, all the problems of leprosy. But the Levitical priesthood could give you an answer whether you were cured of that or not and would sanctify you and you could come into the congregation. What a priesthood. Now come to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5 is short. Hebrews 5, the first ten verses deal with one main theme. But you need to be reminded of how important a priest is. I assume, like I have said already, that you are here this morning because you have a religious need. You believe there's a God. You believe you're a sinner. And you believe if you were to stand before that God at this hour... Without a priest, you'd be in trouble. Therefore, the importance of Hebrews 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, because they all deal with the priesthood of Jesus Christ. The priesthood of Christ began at verse 12 of chapter 4. Remember, we ended dealing with the rest that God has offered His New Testament people in the gospel we ended that discussion in verse 11 and took up in verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful. Verse 13, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. And then those last two verses are most important. The priesthood of Christ is set forth as being a great priesthood by the fact that this priest was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Notice the problem Paul's dealing with. He just told these Jews, Jesus is the Word of God. He's deity. Well, the automatic conclusion of a Jewish mind is, I want to hide from that priest, wouldn't you? It would be just like Adam and Eve. You'd want to hide from a priest that was only God. Because how can God relate to your weakness in the flesh. How can God understand when you sin in your daily lives? How can God understand that? So Paul immediately swings over in verse 15 to say, For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly. Just because He's God, don't think you can't come boldly to Him. Because he was also man. Remember chapter 2, Hebrews? Because chapter 2 is where he said, in that he himself had suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Here's a priest that is God and he's man. He can see everything, all the circumstances that affect you, brethren, and you think moved you into your sin, all the evil trouble that you endure. He sees it all. And not only does he see it all in his divine nature, in his human nature, he endured it all. And he can relate to what you're going through. Chapter 5, 4. Now, what he has to do with a Hebrew is convince him that Jesus Christ is an adequate replacement for the Levitical priesthood. Because remember, to follow Jesus Christ, you were cast out of the temple. This is the message of Hebrews. If you can get the seriousness of that decision on the part of a Hebrew Christian, you get the book of Hebrews. To follow Christ, they had to leave the Levitical priesthood and its sacrifices and offerings. Can you imagine the turmoil in their minds at making that decision? So Paul is now going to set up Jesus Christ as more than adequate to replace the Levitical priesthood. Now he has stated in verse 15, Jesus is able to feel our infirmities. He can relate to us because he was tempted in all points like as we are. And now he teaches something that every man has known, whether in a pagan religion or the true religion. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. What is the office of priesthood? Somebody to stand between God and man that can relate to both. Very simple. He's simply stating an obvious fact that most of this world understands. A priest has to be able to relate to both because he is an intermediary. He is a mediator. Every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. It must be a man that can offer sacrifices that God will accept. Verse 2, But not only will God accept him, How does he relate to other men who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. This is so beautiful. Paul has already said Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ was tempted in all points like as we are. Now he says, you all know what is required of a priest. He's got to be able to offer gifts and sacrifices acceptable to God, but he's also got to have compassion on us poor sinners. Does Jesus fit the bill so far? Do you see Paul's logic and his flow of thought? You don't see it? I mean, This is simple. Who can have compassion on the ignorant. You know, there's basically two types of sins. There are sins that you don't even know about. There's, you're, who knows what we've done this morning? You know, I'll admit this. We may have sinned this morning in our worship. And it hasn't been revealed to us yet. We certainly have tried to study the New Testament and find out how a New Testament church is to worship. But we may have sinned this morning. There are sins of ignorance. And a high priest taken from among men knows that because he sinned ignorantly also. And then there are sins of presumption, whereby the force of the temptation... And the weakness of your flesh, you give in to something that you know is wrong. That's described under the phrase, those that are out of the way. You know, all we like sheep have gone astray. Going astray that way isn't out of ignorance. It's going astray because we're just willfully stubborn sometimes. And we want things our way. A good high priest recognizes not only ignorance on the part of those that he intercedes for, but he also recognizes they have a weakness in the flesh, and they will sin sometimes against the things they know that are wrong. Every high priest needs these qualifications. The Jews understood that. Pagan religion understands that. Do you this morning? And once you understand it, all you do is pop back to chapter 4 and realize, Jesus is a great high priest. He's got both of these as far as you'd want them. Tempted in all points like as we are? Can he have compassion? Indeed, can he offer gifts and sacrifices acceptable to God? He is God. This is beautiful. I know I ought to be a salesman. For that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. A high priest, a good high priest, when you go to him and you say, Father, oh, I don't want to use that word. You say, high priest, I have sinned. And the high priest says, Son, I understand I was once an 18 year old young man. I know all the temptations of youth. You know how comforting that is? Do you know how comforting that is? What about a high priest that would rebuke you when you, when you came in repentance and sorrow with a gift to offer God, a priest that ridiculed you? A priest that simply threw in your face, well, what'd you do that for? You idiot, you know better than that. This is the third time in a month you've confessed that sin. A high priest needs to be one who's compassionate for that he himself is compassed with infirmity. Jesus Christ, my friends, didn't have infirmity on the inside, but he was tempted in all points like as we are. And we can come as often as we are able to come and beg of him forgiveness. What a high priest. If you can't get consolation out of this message, I don't know how to console you. And by reason hereof, he ought as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. Now the first three verses are together. If you've got a high priest who can relate to you because he's also sinned, well then you've got a problem. Well, that's a blessing, but it's also a problem. He better make sure he pays for his own sins first or... When he offers sacrifices for you, your sins, God's not going to accept them. Do you follow that? It's a blessing, but it's also a problem. It's a weakness of high priests taken from among men. Now, Paul doesn't say anything yet about this point. Paul is the, this is the most subtle book in the Bible. He is going to come back and argue from this point. But to a sharp Hebrew, oh, paul 's already taught us that he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin he doesn't need to offer for himself he doesn't need to offer for himself, but he doesn 't argue that here that 's going to come a couple chapters from now, but it 's there if you're if you 're looking so that's the first the first three verses are this point: A priest is a man who can make intercession for men to God. God will accept him, and men can relate to him, and he can relate to men, understanding their weaknesses. That's the first concept. See, these Jews well understood what was necessary in a priest. That's the first thing they understood. Jesus Christ satisfies that perfectly in the last two verses of chapter 4. Now we move on. They also understood that a priest had to be called of God. Not just anyone could be a priest. He had to be called of God. He had to have proper credentials or proper authority to be a priest. That's found in verses 4 through 6, where we read, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. The Jews knew that not anybody could be a priest. In fact, out of the 13 tribes of Israel, did I say that right? Thirteen tribes of Israel. Only one tribe was chosen to be the priestly tribe. That was the tribe of Levi. But even within the tribe of Levi, only one family could be priests. Those were the direct descendants of Aaron. There were a lot of Levites that didn't descend from Aaron. They descended through other grandchildren of Levi. They could not be priests. Their, their responsibilities in the tabernacle were very limited. You know, they did things like, they're more like deacons. They carried around the tabernacle, set things up, but as far as offering the sacrifices, going into the holiest of all, only the descendants of Aaron could do that. No man taketh this honor unto himself. So think of... Please pretend you're a Jew. First of all, a priest has to be able to relate to God and man. Christ satisfied that one. Second qualification, he has to be called of God He has to have proper credentials. Let me remind you of just how serious Hebrews 5 and verse 4 is. And for just a moment, I'll run a rabbit here and speak to all those of you who have maybe thought you were called to the ministry or other men have foolishly told you you were called to the ministry. Let this verse haunt you always. No man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Aaron was specifically picked out of the whole nation, and God said to Moses, This is my man and no others. Look at Exodus chapter 28. Keeping your finger in Hebrews 5. Exodus chapter 28. See, Moses was from the tribe of... Numbers chapter 16, look at the first verse. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. What name is conspicuous by its absence? Aaron, Aaron. He's in the right tribe. He's in the tribe of Levi, but he doesn't come through the right grandson. Aaron isn't there. Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and An, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben. So here we have some Levites that didn't come from Aaron, and we've got some sons of Reuben. Verse 2, And they rose up before Moses, with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown, And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. This is one of the most serious moments in the whole Bible. When God has called some specific men to an office and some other men accuse them of taking too much on themselves and they ought to share their responsibilities and that God considers everyone to be holy and they all can serve Him. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? Ever heard things like that in a church where deacons wanted to rule? If you haven't, you will if you are in the wrong church sometime. The whole congregation is holy. You take too much on yourself. You run it like a dictatorship. You ought to share some of it. We're all holy too. You know, you're not the only one that can understand the Word of God. You're not the only one that can teach. Moses, the meekest man that ever dwelt in the face of the earth, the Bible tells us, other than Christ. Moses had never asked for this job. How many times did Moses try to get out of this job? Do you remember? And now they're accusing him of taking too much on himself. He falls flat on his face. And you know the story. He comes to to Korah and he says in verse 6, Take you censers Korah and all his company and put fire therein and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. Do you you get this? Do you understand this at all? Moses tells some men God hasn't called. Okay, go ahead. Go get your censers. Put some fire therein. You go off before the Lord tomorrow. I'll let you do it. Go ahead. Do you smell anything? <laughs> I smell fire, and it's not the fire from their sensors. Moses is great. Moses he gives them what they want, but the Lord is greater. And he says in verse Moses says in verse nine to Korah, Seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel hath separated you from the congregation of Israel? To bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them. What he is saying is, Korah was the son of Levi. He, he was able to work in the tabernacle, but he couldn't do the office of a priest. And Moses is saying, is it a small thing to you that God's chosen you out from the other thirteen tribe, out of the thirteen tribes to minister before him? You gotta have the priesthood. You can't be happy with that. And how many ministers should say that to their deacons? Can't you be happy with your job instead of trying to be guardians of the pulpit? We have an exchange here between God and Moses. And then Moses says in verse 26 and 27, he tells the whole congregation, get away from these people, brethren. I smell fire. Get away. And he says in verse 28, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these things. I didn't want it. I didn't take it. I, I didn't ask for this office. God has sent me, for I have not done them of mine own mind. This is so important. Aren't Moses and Paul a lot alike? Neither of them wanted their jobs. Moses didn't want to be God's prophet, and Paul didn't want to be an apostle. I have not done them of mine own mind. If these, This is verse 29 of Numbers 16. If these men die the common death of all men or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick, that is, alive, into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, didn't take long, just let him get to his period at the end of the sentence that the ground clave asunder that was under them and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their houses and all the men that appertained to Korah and all their goods, they and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit. There's the definition of the word quick. And the earth closed upon them and they perished from among the congregation. Now, it doesn't really end there. Do you know what happens next? Moses calls forward Eliezer. In verse 37, Speak unto Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest. Well, we got to get verse 35. And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that were great in the congregation, men of renown. The Lord just smoked them. They were just consumed right there on the spot. But their censers remain. There's 255 censers or so remaining. And so Moses calls Eliezer forward and he says, the sense, verse 37, that he take up the censers out of the burning and scatter thou the fire yonder, for they are hallowed. The censers of these sinners against their own souls, let them make them broad plates for a covering of the altar, for they offered before the Lord. Therefore they are hallowed and they shall be a sign unto the children of Israel. See, these censers, Kor and his men had gone in before the presence of the Lord. Moses said, take those babies. Beat them out. They're hallowed. They were in the presence of God. Plaster them around the altar of the Lord for a reminder to Israel that the only ones that better come nigh that altar are God's priests. No man taketh this honor unto himself but he that is called of God as was Aaron. This is how God judges men who claim they are called when they're not called. Who try to perform in an office that God did not put them in. Numbers chapter 17. Numbers chapter 17. We have 12 rods brought before the presence of the Lord. Remember, you know what a rod is. It's an old piece of dead wood that's been beat around for 50 years that your grandfather gave you before he died. And the heads of the tribes had a rod. And the head of each tribe brought their rod, laid it up before the Lord. And the next morning God said, The tribe that I have chosen I'll show again. If yesterday didn't do it for you, I'll show again because it hadn't done it. One of the saddest statements in all the Word of God is verse 41 of Numbers 16. After watching the ground open, don't you think you'd be humble? Look at verse 41. But on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. You Can you believe that? Is God merciful? Why in the world did He let them last another day, Moses and Aaron? Men don't learn, do they? The next day on the morrow, you've killed the people of the Lord. Why, those men were good men. They were men of renown. They were holy men. Who do you think you are? You've killed them. Moses didn't do anything. God killed them. But look who gets blamed. God's minister. So in chapter 17, God says, I'll prove it again. They laid up their rods the next morning. Look at verse 8 of number 17. And it came to pass that on the morrow, this is the second day now, Moses went into the tabernacle of witness and behold the rod of Aaron, the rod of Aaron, for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds. And like I said a few weeks ago, it wasn't that there was just a little shoot sticking off that thing. You could eat the almonds off it. Did God make His will known. No man taketh this honor unto himself, save he that is called of God, as was Aaron. And here's where Aaron was called. And then if you were to read the first seven verses of Numbers chapter 18, God deals further by saying, I don't want the Levites... Getting near my altar. That is only for Aaron's sons, and I'm not going to read it. It is simply a repetition of what you already know. I want you to turn, however, to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. 2 Chronicles chapter 26. I'm trying to put you in the Hebrew mind. You remembered stories like that. Well, this was recorded in the Law of Moses, and the, the Law of Moses was read every Sabbath day, brethren. They heard about this. But they also heard this one. Second Chronicles chapter 26, about a king of Jerusalem named Uzziah. He was quite a cunning man. For those of you who are engineers, look in verse 15. He made in Jerusalem engines. Now, you know, in, in the 20th century, thinks they're so far ahead. He made in Jerusalem engines invented by cunning men to be on the towers and upon the bulwarks to shoot arrows and great stones withal. We know what those are called, don't we? Catapults. And his name spread far abroad, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. God marvelously helped him till he was strong, and when he was strong, he got proud. Look what it says in verse 16, but when he was strong... His heart was lifted up to his destruction. Pride cometh before a fall, the Bible tells us. For he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. Don't read ahead, brethren. Get this message. God may bless you, but make sure you don't take that blessing as a sign from him you ought to try something outside the calling he's made to you. Listen, this man was marvelously helped. Where would he have ended up if he'd stayed that way? But being marvelously helped. And you know we may have a deacon someday that in the judgment of your pastor is not called to be a minister. And he may be marvelously helped. And he may be able to give a good word of exhortation from time to time. So what? Let him abide in the calling where God has placed him. And not try to assume one word that God has not given him. This man was king. He did have some authority. But he didn't have the right pedigree. He didn't have the right genealogy. He went and burned incense upon the altar of incense in the temple. Verse 17, And Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him fourscore priests of the Lord that were valiant men. I love the Word of God. Can you just picture this scene? There's 81 tough dudes, if you want me to get this into the 20th century vernacular. 81 tough dudes, and there's a king who is stepping on their sacred territory, and that is their calling. And they stand there watching this king, and they withstood, in verse 18, Isaiah the king, and said unto him, It appertaineth not unto thee, Isaiah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed. Neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. You know, he thought he was going to honor God by doing a little extra for the Lord. Then Isaiah was wroth. I mean, this king, he knew God was on his side. He had been so far. He was wroth at somebody telling him he couldn't do anything. And he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was wroth with the priests, the leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked upon him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they thrust him out from thence. Yea, himself hasted also to go out Because the Lord had smitten him, and Isaiah the king was a leper unto the day of his death, and dwelt in a several house, being a leper. For he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Couldn't even go into worship at all any longer. Those 81 men stood there and said, This doesn't appertain to you, King Isaiah. Get out of here right now. This is not going to be honor to you from God. And he got upset. Who do you think you have telling me I can't serve the Lord? And while they stood there, the leprosy came off that altar of incense and rose right up into his forehead. And for any of you who have ever looked in any medical encyclopedia and seen a picture of leprosy, your forehead is the last place you'd want it. You might be able to take it in your feet for a while, but it is terrible. It just eats the skin, the flesh away. You just rot away and it came into his forehead. God defends his office. Hebrews chapter 5. You say, is all that important? Listen. that All that was written for the sake of the Hebrews and for us upon whom the ends of the world are come. And you've got to have that in your mind to understand why Paul argues the way he does. First qualification, a priest has to be able to relate to men and to God. Jesus Christ does that better than any man ever dreamed of having a mediator. Second qualification, he better be called of God. If he's not called of God, he's not going to do any good. In fact, God will judge him. And that's all contained in verse 4. When the Bible says, no man taketh this honor unto himself, that applies as well to the New Testament ministry but those God has called. Briefly, desire doesn't call. Desire doesn't call. Did desire call Moses? Did Moses have a burning desire to be God's prophet? If Moses had a burning desire it was to stay in the backside of the desert where he had a wife and kids and a comfortable life. He didn't want this office. Have you ever read Exodus chapter 3 and see the three separate times Moses tries to balk with God and God finally gets angry with Moses Moses told you right there at number 16 I didn't want this it was against my mind look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 1 Corinthians chapter 9 some people until they've read this verse are surprised that Paul didn't want to be an apostle listen if you go read 2 Corinthians 11 and read about being beat five times stoned three times shipwrecked and everything else that happened to him would you want to be an apostle Look at 1 Corinthians 9. I want to get verse 16. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Why should I think I'm doing something terrific? I have to do this. He says, Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Verse 17, For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. I have some personal satisfaction. But if against my will... A dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. When God gives a dispensation of the gospel to a man, often it is given to men who don't want it to manifest all the more that it is God's call. And when you have a man like Moses, so shy and timid that he didn't want to speak, and he becomes the leader, you know God's on his side, and and God did manifest it with a few signs and wonders. And then Paul didn't want it. And here he proves that point. Desire is not a qualification for the ministry. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And for any who are worrying, and I hope no one is worrying this morning, I'm not going to finish Hebrews 5 this morning. That hurts. I'm ashamed, but I'm not. The priesthood of Christ is too important here. I want to present this so that you can get as excited about it as I am. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Some men have gone to this chapter and read these words. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And because they have a desire for the work, they think they're called to preach. This is not even a qualification. If this was a qualification, Paul wouldn't have been an apostle and Moses wouldn't have been a prophet. This is not even a qualification. This isn't even a place to start. All it says is, if a man has a desire for the office of a bishop, the office of a bishop is a good work. That's all it says. Now we deal with qualifications. Beginning in verse 2. A bishop then. A bishop then. Must be blameless and so forth. And it goes on to describe the qualifications for the office. What is the call to the ministry? I've preached on this before, but it's always good to remind. What is the call to the ministry? It is God's appointment to the ministry. The word call means appointment. I can show you that Jesus was appointed to be a high priest and he was called to be a high priest. I can show you verses where it says Paul was called to be an apostle and where it says Paul was appointed to be apostle. Don't let the word call confuse you. You know how it confuses men? They lay awake at night waiting for the call. All because of the four-letter word call. Remember being at Bob Jones, Brother David? How many times? I've said it this way before, and this is so true. How many boys get called to be a, be a preacher or a pastor at Bob Jones University and when they flunk Greek? they get a call to the the mission field because the missionary course of study didn't involve Greek, and when they flunked that, they got a call to the institute where they became a bus mechanic. That happened. I had a roommate that that happened to. He flunked Greek, so he got a call to the mission field because to get a degree in missions at Bob Jones University, he didn't have to take Greek. And to be a bus mechanic, there wasn't that much emphasis even on the English. So they just, boom, boom, boom. You know, God's call was quite convenient. Quite convenient. It's not a voice. It's not a dream. It's not a vision. It's not even a burning desire in your heart. Would to God, and I mean this, every single man in this congregation had a burning desire... To be a minister. Because you're desiring a good work. Is there a scriptural basis for desiring that office? Look at 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In fact, I'll go this far. Would to God all the men and all the women had a desire to be a minister. For women to sit and wish, I wish I could study God's Word and I wish I could teach God's people. That is no farther removed from God's plan than for men who aren't called to desire the same thing. It's impossible on both counts unless God calls. Look at 1 Corinthians twelve twenty-eight, And God hath set some in the church First apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, he's ranking the gifts. After that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Guess where that ranks me compared to Jimmy Swagger. What's higher, teaching or miracles? He's never done a miracle anyway, but you know what I mean. Verse 29, are all apostles... No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Have all the gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But covet earnestly the best gifts. And what are the best gifts? First, apostles. Secondarily, prophets. Thirdly, teachers. The Bible tells you to earnestly covet the best gifts. I wish every man in this church coveted the ministry. But that doesn't prove a call. That simply proves some zeal in your heart for the Lord of hosts. Think about David, brethren. David. How much did David want to build God and house? He collected all the gold and silver until it was beyond counting. He applied himself diligently to the acquiring of cedar, wood, servants, cunning craftsmen, everything. And the Bible says he wanted to build God and house. But what did God say? No. No. Solomon will build it for me. David was content with that. He didn't go against the will of God. But notice the desire there. I'd like that same kind of a desire for the office of the ministry and the part of every man. Then let God separate them. How does God separate them? Do we plant recorders in bedrooms waiting for voices? No, God separates by ability. God calls men by ability. How do we know when a man's called to be a mechanic? He has mechanical aptitude. (laughs) I'm not going to denigrate myself too much. Yesterday, God revealed to me once again, I am not called to be a mechanic. Brother Greg, that's our secret. It was pitiful. It was humiliating. I was shamed. But I can't help it. How do you know when God's called a man to be a mechanic? When you go to 1 Corinthians 7, that's how the word calling is used. Abide in the calling wherewith ye were called. Whether you're a free man, whether you're a servant, stay in that calling. Unless there's some advantage to change it. Don't think the gospel means you have to turn your life upside down. Stay in that calling. How do we know someone is called to work with computers or to work with data or to be an engineer? Those are all different mindsets. You cannot just go to college and become an engineer and go anywhere. God had to give you the ability for that. And the ability also brings with it the desire. You actually enjoy it. While others would flip open one of those textbooks on fluids and hydraulic transmission and turn up their noses and get grossed out just get sick of the idea of being an engineer. God gives ability to their minds think different than other disciplines. Mechanics. Their minds think through a problem in a different way than some. God makes differences. How do you know? How do you know what you're qualified for or what you're called to do but by your ability. We talk this way all the time. Talking about the aptitude of different people. See, that's something God gave them that's recognizable by others, usually by those in, the own, in that profession who can recognize that guy has a gift because they're the ones who know what the gift involves. The call is known by the ability. That's why Paul wrote Timothy and he said, a man must then be Boom, boom, boom. He lists about 15 different qualifications. And when a minister witnesses those qualifications in another man, he can see God's call on that man. It comes through another minister. Not even through the man himself. The man himself doesn't know because the man himself hasn't been in the job yet. And it's not desire. I would much rather see someone fighting the ministry. Have it, do you understand how you can have a desire on one hand and a, and some rebellion on the other hand? Listen, every man ought to want to be a minister for the sake of doing something big for God. On the other hand, there ought to be fear in his soul of that job. You can have both. And I I, I would much rather see somebody pushing away than someone wanting to jump into it because of the pattern in Scripture. The call is known by the ability that God gives and it's recognized by other ministers. That's why ministers are to ordain. Churches are to ordain. But what is the practice among most Baptist churches? The church gets together and says, we want to call for a meeting of elders and deacons to ordain brother so-and-so to the ministry. They don't have the foggiest idea of what's involved in being a minister. Somebody who's been there can look at a man and know whether that man has what it takes to do the job. First Timothy was not written to any church, it was written to a minister. Timothy, here are the qualifications for a minister. God never gave those qualifications to a church. Titus. Paul wrote Titus and he said in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every church. He didn't say go to the churches and call for conference meetings whereby they can call somebody to be ordained. He said go do it. Because you know what's involved, Titus. Look at Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31. This is, I consider, to be the clearest passage in the Bible on what the call to the ministry is. It is God-given ability that is recognized by others. You can't recognize it yourself. You haven't done the job yet. You're not even sure what's involved in the job yet. It's God-given ability recognized by a minister. Exodus 31, verse 1. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to devise cunning works to work in gold and in silver and in brass and in cutting of stones to set them and in carving of timber to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, behold, I have given with him a Holiab, the son of Ahizamak of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted I have put wisdom that they may make all that I have commanded thee. Do you know how complicated the tabernacle was? Those, those outfits the priests wore? the altar, the, uh, the laver where they washed, the Ark of the Covenant, the inner sanctuary, the linens that went all the way around the, in the curtains. There was a lot of complicated craftsmanship involved. God called a certain man to do it. How did he know the call of God? Bezalel, oh, Bezalel. No, didn't even tell him. All this man did was sit at home in his workshop and turn out the finest craftsmanship anybody had ever seen so that God could say to Moses, and this is why I believe this is the most beautiful passage in the call. God could say to Moses in verse 2, See? See? Because it will be obvious. It's going to be visible. See? I have called by name, Bezalel. Now, Bezaleel didn't come to Moses and say, Moses, God's called me to do this job. It doesn't work that way. God will convince a man that is already in the ministry, as Moses was, to see in another man the qualifications necessary and it's not even vague. They will stick out and be obvious. And the qualifications, instead of being able, as verse 4 says, to devise cunning works will be things like one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. And the qualifications listed there. Moses had qualifications. Bezalel satisfied them, obviously. Timothy was given a set of qualifications when a man comes along that God has called. You don't have to sit and hem and haw and wonder and debate back and forth forever. It'll be obvious. What is Ordination. Ordination is simply the formal recognition of that and the investiture with the power and authority of the office by God's minister. That's all it is. It's really a simple concept. Let's go back to Hebrews 5. We'll wrap up this second point from the fifth chapter of Hebrews. The first point was again. In the first three verses, a priest must be able to relate to the infirmities of men And he must be able to relate to God so that his gifts and sacrifices are accepted. Jesus Christ was God. Obviously, his priestly intercession was accepted. And he was tempted at all points like as we are. He can relate to us when we come to him and confess our sins. Point number two to a Hebrew mind. But a priest has to be called of God. He better be appointed of God or he's not an acceptable priest, as was Aaron. And you know, Paul just lays it on heavy. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. And the Hebrews are saying, Amen, Amen, thinking they had Christ. Can you follow that? Paul? I can't get over this book. This is the most exciting book in the Bible to see Paul setting these Jews up. Now look at verse 5. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made in high priest, Jesus Christ didn't want the job by Himself. He was put into it by God. So Christ also glorified not Himself to be made in high priest, but He that said unto Him, Thou art my Son, today have I begotten Thee. And remember that's from Psalm 2-7. Paul's already used it in chapter 1, proving the deity of Christ and that God made Him His Son. Verse 6, as he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now do you want to talk about the call to the ministry? Hebrews? Who do you think had it the most? Aaron or Christ? Do you catch the weight of that? The same being that said, thou art my son, also said, thou art a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, not even the Aaronic priesthood, but a more mysterious priesthood that he's going to delve into in a minute and that he has to pick on them a little bit for here in verses 11 through 14 because he's afraid they're not going to understand. But it's more glorious than the Aaronic priesthood. Do you see that this morning? So Also Christ glorified not himself to be made in high priest. Do you know what the Bible says? I came down from heaven not to do mine own will. Moses and Paul and Christ were all in the same boat. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, while Jesus Christ knew He wanted to please His Father in all things, yet He could still pray at the same time, Father, if it be possible, let this cup depart from me. And how many times do ministers say, God, if it's possible, keep me out of that office. So also Christ glorified not himself. He did not take that honor unto himself. God put him in it. These poor Hebrews are being cut off everywhere they turn. Jesus Christ is a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is God. He was tempted in all points. Can He stand between us? There is no need for us to hide, brethren. But for those of you particularly of a melancholy temperament, how often do we hide? How often do we hide from that Creator God in our pride and in our fear That because we haven't achieved perfection, He is not going to accept us nor forgive us. And so we wallow in our sins instead of coming boldly to Him. He was tempted in all points like as we are. We can come boldly. He can feel our infirmities. We do not have a high priest that cannot be touched with our pain. He can be touched with every source of pain you've ever endured and console and comfort you in it. And he did not take that office upon himself. God made him your high priest. We don't need the Levitical priesthood. We have a greater priesthood. We have the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We as fathers don't need to offer a bloody sacrifice of some sheep or goat or bullock. We have Christ who's done it for us, who's also God, who's sitting at his own right hand. And the sacrifice has already been accepted. And He knows the pain we go through so that He is able to succor us in all of our pain, sufferings, and temptations. Brethren, is there anything more glorious than the priesthood of Jesus Christ? There are five billion people on this planet at this hour. And it's growing. And all of them know they need a priest And you have had revealed to you in the gospel good tidings that things have been done for you so that there is already a high priest that excels even the priests ordained of God in the past. We have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. Let us hold fast our profession. Amen.